This is the One Accord Podcast. This time we're talking about divine foreknowledge. Now, foreknowledge uh, can take on uh, many different nuances, and so we'll get into that in just a bit. But let's go ahead and bring in the rest of our uh, team for this uh, important and interesting conversation. Brother Greg. Brother Greg, how are you? I'm doing great. Good morning. How are you? I'm, uh, I'm doing just fine. Uh, it's nice to see you as always. Uh, anything new or exciting in your world or uh, still uh, blessedly boring? Blessedly boring. Absolutely. Well, I know new. that's the way that you like it. Uh, it so, is. Uh, well, it uh, is. you and me both, brother. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, you and uh, let's bring in Pastor Eric. Pastor Eric, how are you today? I'm doing good. I'm looking forward to learning uh, about this very confusing and um, uh, stressful topic. <laughs> stressful? Why it's stressful? Stressful for me. I've I've given this topic a lot of thought, and I, I still... I'm not even sure where exactly I land on certain aspects of it, so I'm hoping that you'll you'll bring some clarification for me. Oh, well, maybe those uh, expectations will go unmet, and if so, uh, I apologize in advance. But uh, I, I like talking about this. I I, I uh, think that this topic can be frustrating in other ways, and it is very much tied to our last conversation. So I don't know uh, if you're watching this. Perhaps you uh, did uh, uh, stick with us through our conversation on sovereignty. Um, but uh, in that conversation, we at least touched on some of these themes. Uh, and we will also, uh, as we get into these discussions, we'll realize that we're we're getting closer to other doctrines such as election. Um, and so as much as possible, we're going to really try and at least frame this particular conversation of foreknowledge uh, around sovereignty, providence, omniscience, kind of that end of it. Um, and uh, we will save our conversation for election for another time when we'll probably get into this a little bit more. Uh, but for anybody who wasn't watching last time, I uh, I don't want us to rehab the two-hour-plus conversation that we had, um, but I just wanted to read from uh, from this book uh, by Norman, Dr. Norman Geiser, Chosen But Free. Uh, this is one of this. This was a book that I really enjoyed reading. Uh, either of you guys familiar with this book? No, I've heard of it but never read it. Yeah. So um, if you enjoy conversations about uh, the interaction between God's sovereignty and the freedom of of the human will and the the responsibility. Um, you may enjoy this book, although I know that sometimes books I enjoy uh, make other people crazy and, and vice versa. So, um, you know, I guess it depends. Uh, but I, I really enjoy Norman Geisler's um, writing style and the way that he uh, distills things. And so I just wanted to read, he's in chapter two is called What Are the Alternatives? And um, in a lot of our conversations, uh, not just on sovereignty, but on many things, we've talked about, I think, Greg, uh, you, maybe you were the first to use this language, and I, I really appreciate it you know, that there's this narrow road of truth and there's ditches on both sides, kind of those extremes that we could fall into on either side. And so Norman Geisler isn't necessarily using that exact same language, but he's going to give an extreme view on the Calvinistic side and describe that. On the other side, he'll give an extreme Arminian view and describe that. And then he puts a, a middle path. Um, so here's the, the extreme sovereignty view uh, that Dr. Norman Geisler wrote in this book, Chosen But Free, about God's control. He says this, quote, this position this extreme sovereignty view, understands sovereignty in the strong sense of divine control over and determination of the entire universe and of all actions in it. God is in complete charge of all that happens and will happen, including all free choices of his creatures. Nothing we do can change his fixed plan, which he preordained from all eternity. The future is not open to being quote-unquote helped in its formation by our free actions. Now, that's sovereignty. That's what we discussed last time. Uh, and this is the extreme view of God's foreknowledge. Geyser continues, says, God knows with certainty everything that will happen in the future, including all free actions. Nothing can change this. It is fixed and immutable. 
Since God is omniscient, he cannot be wrong about anything. Hence, if he knows what's going to happen, and he knows everything that's going to happen, then it must happen exactly as he foreknew it would happen. So that's the extreme view on one end. Do you guys have any additions that you would put to that? I mean, that is, I don't think that that's either of your view, certainly not my view, but that is the extreme end on one end. God, the reason God knows everything is because he determined it all in advance and he, he couldn't be otherwise. So he has perfect omniscience, perfect foreknowledge. Could you say that God has perfect foreknowledge, but not because he has predetermined all future events? Um, well, certainly some people uh, will say that. Um, not in this view, this extreme view, this uh, extreme uh, Calvinist view, but, but yes, uh, I think the extreme view, uh, you know, or at least some people would argue that I think, I mean, wouldn't you put yourself in that camp that God does have perfect foreknowledge, but doesn't, uh, predetermine every, every choice, every action. Well, I would. And that, that's exactly why I asked because it's, um, it's, it sounds like, you know, it sounds like it's, I just want to make sure I'm understanding the, the, the definitions he's giving. Um, it's, it sounds like he's saying God foreknows everything that's going to come to pass because he's predetermined everything. Um, and of course that's, that's logically consistent. Um, but yeah, I, my, my view is that God does foreknow, uh, all things that are going to come to pass, uh, but not, not because he's determined those things. Um, and if, if different choices were made, then he would have foreknown the future that would have come from those different choices. That's basically the way that I would describe it. So pause that thought for just one second when I read his middle view, and I think maybe that will be closer to what you're advocating for. Okay. Um, but yeah, this is, this is, again, he's intending, this is not a view that he holds. He's just putting the one end of the extreme yeah, sure. position on, on the one side. Okay. Greg, do you have anything yep. to add before we, we read the extreme other, other end? No, nope, I don't think okay. so. So again, in theology discussions, there are many people in that camp. I don't think any of us are in that camp. On the other extreme, um, the other end pole, this he calls the extreme free will view. And he says, this uh, God's control, this is uh, Dr. Norman Geiser again, this position maintains that God does not have rigid control of the universe. He gave away some of his sovereignty to his creatures when he gave them free choice. God does not determine human free acts. He reacts to them as he becomes aware of them. The future is not fixed. It's open to our free choices to help determine it. What we decide can change the future. That was his extreme other end on God's control. This is what he says about foreknowledge in this same extreme position. God knows with certainty only what flows from a necessary order of causes. Since our free actions are not necessary, but based on choices, God cannot know them for sure. So the future is not immutable. Omniscience is limited to what is possible for God to know, and it is not possible for God to know future free choices that free creatures will make. Since his knowledge about the future is not infallible, he can make predictions that do not come to pass. What he foretells can have only relative degrees of probability. Nonetheless, because of his great knowledge, God is highly accurate in his forecasting. So God doesn't know. It's a limited, it even limits omniscience and limits foreknowledge. On the other end, none of us hold that view either, correct? No. Right. Don't, I don't and so, so one of the things that happens a lot of times in conversations, I think, um, and uh, when we talk to someone who seems to push back on something, I think, 
And this is something that I hope to avoid. I know I've done it to people. I know people have definitely done it to me. And so I don't want to do it, you know, from this point forward is that often when we disagree with someone, we end up, we tend to push them all the way to the other side. And there's a middle view that I'm going to read that I think is, again, based on our conversation, I think that you guys will, um, probably agree with. Um, but again, none of us are in the extreme sovereignty uh, camp. None of us are in the extreme free will camp. Uh, here's the balanced view that attempts to balance God's sovereignty, human free choices, uh, while maintaining God's perfect omniscience. Uh, here's what he writes. Uh, Geisler again, last two definitions before we get to uh, our conversation. According to the balanced or middle view of sovereignty and free will, God is in quote unquote control of the universe of free creatures by his foreknowledge. He does not force anyone's freedom, but he knows in advance from all eternity exactly what everyone is going to freely do and how much persuasion will be needed for them to do it. Further, God was free to create or not create, to create free creatures or not create them, knowing exactly what would happen in every possible world, he freely chose to create this one to achieve the greatest good. His omniscient foreknowledge assures that it's going to come out exactly as he knew it would. That's his control. Do you guys hear anything in that that, that you disagree with? Or that, um, again, based on our conversation, I think this would be the least objectionable of the three alternatives, at least the way that he puts them out. Yeah, I'd, I'd say the least objectionable. I, I, again, I don't, I, it's hard for me to, I know. to think and hear, and I'd, I'd rather have it in front of me. But um I would definitely express things differently as we've said many times, but I yeah. think, I think I would definitely fall closest. Well, I know for sure I'd fall closest within this camp. I'm, I'm uncomfortable with some of the language, uh, particularly when he says that God uh, knows um, exactly how much influence is needed to um, cause people to make certain choices. I, th I think, and I'm, I'm probably not quoting him word for word, but he said something along those lines. Yeah. Um, I would be I would be uncomfortable um, saying it that way, because it almost sounds as if he's saying God uh, that God does cause people to uh, to do things by you know exerting just the right amount of influence to to get them to do exactly what he wants them to do. I I would I would I'm very uncomfortable with that definition. I th I think like if I hear him and I'm hearing him not in a very I'm hearing him in a very neutral way I think we would say like how much prompt the Holy Spirit's going to prompt you to do something you're being led by the Spirit um, you know to what degree or what what amount of Holy Spirit prodding would you need right like would you disagree I mean I maybe you wouldn't perfectly use that language but that's what I hear him saying there is is you're being influenced by the Holy Spirit to to walk a certain way do you, you, that might be lesser more or lesser degrees of prompting you need is that fair joe would you understand it something along those terms i do i would even i would even just add on not to disagree with anything you said but even for unbelievers um and similar to you know eric you were quoting some of the passages about hardening hardening pharaoh's heart uh for example um that there is some influence not that god necessarily was making them make those choices, but he was in some sense interacting with the environment in which they live um, and leading to events that God predetermined were going to happen. So um, so I would just add that, like I, I think that both the Holy Spirit um, 
in believers and also even in the lives of unbelievers that God does, does, I mean, I think there's so many passages where God is, uh, you know, people might not like the word manipulating, but interacting with the world, um, leading the world, providentially interacting uh, with the world. Um, so I would, you know, you brought up some examples about that. I think that's what he means, those types of things. Um, uh, but I, I don't know if that, if that is, again, satisfying any of the, what your potential pushback was, Eric. Well, I, I guess I'm, and I could be misunderstanding him. I guess what I'm uncomfortable with is the idea that, and this is what, this is what I hear him saying, and maybe I'm wrong, but it sounds as if he's saying that, uh, that God knows the right amount of influence to exert to get people to do everything he wants them to do, which, which kind of, if, if I'm understanding him right, maybe I'm not, but if that's what he meant, then, then, you know, going back to first Corinthians 10, 13, would that mean then that, that every time I make a decision to, let's say, you know, sin, God simply was unwilling to give me the the necessary amount of influence to resist the sin. Uh, maybe that's not what he's saying. I, I, yeah. I don't know. I, I can't, obviously Dr. Norman Geiser has passed away, so he can't speak for himself. Um, uh, I've, you know, I, I'm not trying to speak for him. I think as I've, I have read this book and I've read a lot of Dr. Norman Geiser stuff before. Um, I think that the, the, the position here is not that every decision that people make is what God wants to do, but that God is able to interact with the world. He actually created this world in particular because this is the one that ends up how he wants in the end. Not to say that every decision that's made along the way is what he wanted to happen, but that by creating this world with these people in it that make these decisions, this was the actual world that achieved the purposes, and he knows exactly where it ends. Sounds um, similar to Mullenism. It might. I, I'm not very familiar with Mullenism, so I'll take your word on that. Um, is that also called middle, middle knowledge? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I am not as familiar with that as I maybe would like to be. Uh, I, is that Dr. William Lane Craig's position? He didn't originate the position, but he does promote it. Okay. Um, so I'm more familiar with him on the historical resurrection stuff. Greg, are you familiar with Mullenism or, or middle knowledge? No, not nearly enough to speak on it. Um, you know, when I hear him say, and I know this isn't what he's saying, but I hear a lot of this uh, modern multiverse stuff and I go, sure. ah, this sounds a little bit weird to me, a little sci-fi. So I, <laughs> yeah. I start to pull back right away, yeah. but so I, yeah. I know that's not what he's trying to say, but well, that's what it sounds like. It's, I mean, no, it is it is close to that in some regard. It's not that the multiverse, though, all those parallels exist. Yeah. Um, I think that this idea is that the multiverse exists only in God's mind. And then uh, he by seeing every single pathway that goes out in every possible one, he picked the one to create that is the actual one. And so yeah. the, it's not that the multiverses exist, it's that they only exist in the theoretical possibility of God's infinite mind, and yet the only actual world that exists is ours, and he created this one in particular because this is the one that unfolds the way that he, of all the possibilities, that works out to the greatest good. Yeah, part of, part of my handicap in this conversation and in the last one, I, I know people will hear it as an appeal to mystery, um, but I'm not so comfortable saying all these things about what God does or doesn't. I, um, 
he hasn't revealed that, or at least not clear enough to me. And yeah. I, I'm willing to admit that I'm, you know, I, I'm not nearly as intelligent as I would like. Um, but so I, whether it's an appeal to mystery or an appeal to human fragility, um, I go, yeah, maybe, maybe that's the case. Um, I wouldn't want to stand up and I'm not willing to stand up and go, this is the way it is. Yeah. Um, but that sounds reasonable. Yeah. Well, Greg, I will freely admit that you're not as intelligent as I would like either. Um, uh, amen. <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist that. Uh, you got no, me. No, no, brother. Yeah. I, uh, uh amen. No, I, I likewise, you know, for all of us, uh, I'm sure Eric would agree as well, but I, you know, we're, we're wading into very deep territory and, um, what might seem like a disadvantage though, is in some ways an advantage. If we stick closely to the text, some of there, there are, and I, I want to get into that in this conversation, this episode, let's define our terms. Um, I think that there are some areas where, uh, you know, philosophy has infiltrated some of our definitions that then causes us to come into some, some problems. Definitely. Um, and some of the multiverse stuff, you know, like, again, all of these things, this is all very speculative, right? I mean, if that's, if that's what is being described, that God knows all these multiverse possibilities and then creates this actual one, and that's why he, that's how we can have perfect foreknowledge and all the choices are free, but it, it really is still determined in some sense. It couldn't be any different, not to say that it couldn't have been different in a different world, but in this world, it will all unfold exactly as it will because God chose this one where the free actions that people take can't be otherwise. Um, and so in some sense they are still determined. And again, it gets, it gets kind of philosophical and mind bending for, for everybody. And if, if they say it doesn't, uh, well then brother, they're just smarter than both of us put together probably. So, um, let me read this, uh, other definition of God's predestination for this middle view. And then we'll get into, um, the, the, uh, I don't know, maybe some of the interacting with some of the points in here. Cause I, I'm with you guys. I, I think that, um, and I actually, appreciate some of the pushback. I thought maybe you would agree with this more without any pushback. So I, I, uh, I, 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 I'm thankful for the, the comments you've made so far. God's predestination, again, quoting this middle view from, or this balanced view from Geisler. He says, quote, God has predetermined some individuals to heaven. Election is not merely corporate. It is individual. Election of an individual is based on, uh, or else according to, God's foreknowledge of their free choices. He never predestines anyone contrary to their free will, but elects only those he foreknew would accept his saving grace. There are no conditions for God giving the gift of salvation, but there is one condition for getting it. One must receive it by faith. I think, Eric, you would probably disagree with that. Um, but this is the area where foreknowledge then gets into uh, election, not just omniscience and sovereignty, uh, but they are all tied together. But Greg, uh, do you, in so much, again, I know it's, it's a tough to just go with the definition as I'm reading it, but that's, you hold to a more individual view of election than a corporate view. I think you've said before. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say I don't understand corporate election without individuals being involved. Sure. So, um, I think you and Geyser maybe would be closer on that than certainly than Eric would be. Um, and again, we'll save that election discussion for another time. So, uh, you know, subscribe if you haven't, so you don't miss that one in the future, uh, which which is we don't determined, so we already know how it's going to work, work out. Not us, but God does, uh, and I agree with that. So, so at, at, with these polls put out there, the reason I wanted to read that is again, this is these are the types of conversations that are out there. Doctor Norman Geiser spent you know so much work, time in the world of academia and talking with intellectuals, and and these intellectuals maybe people don't read all this stuff, but their pastors talk about these things, and people on YouTube read these things and talk about these things. So this language influences the conversation in which we're in. On one end, God knows everything because He predetermined everything. On another end, God doesn't know everything and things are open. And really the conversation, the interesting stimulating conversation is in the middle 
somehow trying to, I'm not going to say reconcile, um, but to bring together these ideas of one, God's perfect, infallible knowledge, omniscience. God knows. He knows the past, the present, and the future. He knows everything. We all agree with that part, right? We all, at least on the surface, say God is perfectly omniscient. Yes? Well, I, I know I know because I know the future a little bit too. Wink, wink. Um, I think we're going to just, well, there's going to be some discussion on what it means to know. So I'm very curious to get to get to that, the meat yes. of that. So uh, I don't want to fall into the trap of saying, yes, God knows. And we mean two different, we potentially mean two different things. Sure. So we'll have to define that, I guess, in different ways. And you might disagree with my definition of knowledge, but I will say, I believe that God has perfect knowledge, that God is omniscient. Um, and I say that in particular to uh, distance myself from open theism, because on the extreme view that Geisler promoted, he's not an open theist. There are many open theists out there. Um, I do not think that God is just a good guesser. I do not think that God could ever be wrong. Um, and so I, as I begin to articulate my position, I've been called an open theist that people think that I believe that the future, uh, you know, um, uh, am an open theist. So I at least want to express, I am not an open theist. Uh, and I do not put myself in that camp. Um, another thing, uh, that we want to affirm, I believe is God's sovereignty, which we discussed, uh, you know, to some extent last, uh, last time. Um, and regardless of the various views that were out there, Greg provided a wonderful definition for sovereignty, uh, you know, that, that we all, for the most part, agreed with. Um, and we agree God is sovereign and no one can thwart his will. He does as he pleases. He reigns as king over, over all that he has made. We all affirm that. Yes. Yes. Amen. Yes. Um, we also have to account for these passages in scripture. And I know, Eric, you've brought these up. Uh, Greg, obviously, you know, we've talked about these things before. Um, but God's uh, anger or his hurt or his grief or his regret, um, these are terms that, of course, theologians have to interact with. Um, but one of the things that I've wrestled with and I've expressed on these before is that if God predetermined everything, even on this middle view, that God looked through all the worlds that could be made and he made the one that, that ends in the greatest good, that results in his greatest glory, I have a hard time, and I always had a hard time reading passages that show that God is grieved or upset, even when he says that he like regretted or repented or um, wished that he hadn't made man. These are passages that require some sort of an explanation. And, um, you know, as I was being trained in kind of the more, I was closer to that Calvinistic end or the extreme sovereignty end, um, I just couldn't, it couldn't resolve the the issue of saying well how could god be upset if this is what he chose and he 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 wants it to be he wants it to be this way but then he's saying he doesn't want it to be this way um and so i know eric that these are things of you know you said you these have kind of kept you up at night sometimes as well um and so then there's also these conditional statements in scripture if you do this then i'll do this or if you do this it'll go this way eric you read from i think it was isaiah 48 last time you know if you had obeyed me it would have gone differently for you um and so Closer to the extreme sovereignty view, these are only theoretical possibilities. To me, and Eric, it sounded like you were expressing it, those seem like those are those were actual possibilities. God wasn't, and if 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 the world in which he created, to use Geisler's term, was the world in which they choose to do this, for him to say you could have done something different, 
isn't really fair because they're not in the multiverse and they're not on a different creation. They couldn't have done anything else. This was what the, they were, they were determined to do these things because this is the world in which God made. And so again, those things, those are the issues that I'm trying to bring together. And, um, you know, I don't want to ignore what the Bible says because I have a philosophical answer. I want to say the Bible says these things, God inspired, getting back to our inspiration and inerrancy. God, the Bible is the way that God wants it. Why would he use this language if he wanted us to say, well, he doesn't, he's not really grieved or he's not really upset or it, it couldn't have been any different. Like, why does he say all these different things if then our philosophical, theological conclusions say this is, this is just what it is? So do you guys think that that's at least a fair framework of saying these, we, we see these same issues and it's the, it's the bringing it of it all together. How can we maintain God's sovereignty? How can we maintain true, genuine freedom in some sense, responsibility for those choices? Could it actually be different? And if it could be different, how could God possibly know perfectly and infallibly the future? Like these are the issues that are on the table and it's a big swirling mess of stuff, which is why it gets so confusing and it's, it, it is complicated. Um, is that fair? Am I missing something? Am I bringing too many things into the pot? And like, is the stew got too many ingredients? I mean, what are we, where are you guys at with, with at least what I've said so far? Yeah, I think you framed it well. Um, yeah, for sure. And, th and that's where I go, man, I, I'm, I'll just take that deep, many of these things or some of these things. I go, man, I, I'm just going to have to fall back on that. I don't know. Yeah, that, that's fair. And I, I, I will admit that um, there, there are some very mysterious aspects to, uh, to these things. But no, I think you framed it well, Joe. And you had mentioned that God is grieved. God is hurt. Um, he expresses sorrow over the way things turned out uh, over and over again in Scripture. And if, if things really couldn't have turned out any differently, then wouldn't God be lying? in in these verses i think for me that's one of the biggest issues if if god says a situation could have turned out differently and it really could not have turned out differently if scripture is inspired by god and god really did say that then how is god not lying and well there there is a possibility right um again we're going out into speculation um that if we hold to he caused everything. I, I agree with what you just said, but if we can let go of causal, he could still, something could still happen. Something that was known could still grieve, right? Like if I know my kid's going to disobey me, I didn't cause my kid to disobey me. I didn't, I didn't force my child to disobey me, but I knew my child was going to disobey me. I could still be grieved in the moment, even though I foreknew that. Right. Um, sure, would, I think, I think so. it would be a, would be a counter would, would be just, yeah, to, to build on that or maybe counter it a little bit. Yeah. Because so, there's different kinds of knowledge. And I think as we unpack the different kinds of knowledge, I, to me anyway, um, I, I think it makes, I think that stuff makes sense if we understand that there are different kinds of knowledge. Because I don't think knowledge necessarily has to mean determined. Exactly. And I, I don't, I don't believe that either. So we all agree on that. Um, people outside of this conversation would say, well, if, how can God really know if it's not determined and could God possibly be wrong? Because he's he God. Sure. Who are you, old man? Yeah. Um, well, uh, and 
Romans nine is of course uh, an important text for for these conversations. Um, uh, it is curious to say, well, in what sense am I free if God knows everything I'm going to do in the future? Because as a parent, in that analogy, of course, I, I like analogies. They always break down somewhere. Um, I didn't create my child in the sense of first cause. Uh, obviously, with our children, we did participate in their creation. But that's all an unfolding of things that come before. Um, my genetic contribution to my child doesn't um, – it's still within the framework of what God made. And so their nature, uh, their preferences, um, you know, I can be wrong about what's going on in their mind and heart. God can't. Um, and so I could be wrong about what they do, although as parents, you know, we typically we do, we know what our kids are going to say, the whole eyes in the back of the head thing. I, I, as a parent, I finally understand that. It's like, we, we know what you're thinking. We know what you're doing. Like, <laughs> you're not going to get away with it. Um, but the, the idea that I could be wrong exists where God couldn't. And so if, if, if God can't be wrong, could we ever actually choose otherwise? This is the, this, again, this is the nature of the issue. Um, and so there are a number of passages. I want to be specific so that we're getting away from the speculation, at least at the beginning. Um, Eric, you, you mentioned in kind of broad terms. I want to read uh, a couple of passages that um, really stuck out to me, two in particular, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, that, um, you know, I, I'm studying like this systematic theology, and I'm like, what do I do with a verse like this? In the book of Esther, uh, chapter 4, verse 14, um, Mordecai is speaking. And he's trying to get Esther to make a decision uh, to do something. She's nervous about the potential consequences of that. And uh, he says to her in chapter four, verse 14, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. I think Mordecai has a, a deep theology of understanding that Esther in the moment has actual freedom to choose. God will bring about deliverance for his people regardless of what she chooses. So the end is not in doubt. God knows the end. He declares the end from the beginning. In that sense, it's fixed. My question is, is the pathway to the end fixed? Because God seems to be inspiring that Mordecai is saying to Esther, you should do this because I think this is how God will bring deliverance. But if you don't, your house will perish and God will bring deliverance another way. The deliverance of his people is not in doubt. It's the pathway to that deliverance that is possibly open. And again, I'm not an open theist because open theists think that God could somehow be wrong. He's getting to the same end, possibly via a different avenue. Do you guys think that that is a, a strange way of interpreting this? Or does that seem to be what he's saying to you as well? That's how I understand the text. And, 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 and there's many others that say very similar things. Sure. Yes. I, I'm, this one kind of stuck out for me and is emblematic of that many others. I, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. Uh, another possible way of interpreting it would be um, from Mordecai's perspective, right? Um, the limitations of Mordecai and, and the, the original author of Esther. Um, but yeah, no, I, I have no problem with what you said. Okay. So, uh, a New Testament passage um, that is similar to this is in Second Peter chapter three. Uh, I'm going to pick it up in verse nine, uh, but really the statement is in verse twelve. I just want to give the the context. 
Uh, he says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for, and here's the key word, hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Uh, this passage to me, um, the word is uh, in Greek, speudo, which sounds like speed, uh, hastening, uh, or uh, speeding up. Um, there are a few translations. I think the ASV and the, the Holman, the CSB, um, they, they translate this in a way that I find to be uh, perplexing. They say eagerly desiring rather than speeding or hastening. Um, I think it's because they don't, uh, you know, so, sometimes when people do word studies, they will study as long and hard as they can to find the loophole to try and give them some ability to, 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 to go away from what the text is actually saying. The usage of this, um, you know, we could go through every single usage in the New Testament, but Luke 2.16, Luke 19.5 uh, and 6, Acts 20.16, Acts 22.18, 2 Peter 3.12, all of those verses are the, all the other occurrences of this verb, and they're all about hurrying up, speeding up, making something come faster. So the actual usage um, is seemingly saying that if God's people will stop sinning, will take these things seriously, that potentially we can get to the end in a faster way. Again, does that seem bizarre. That to me just seems to be the plain meaning of the text. The end is fixed, but there's a faster pathway and a shorter pathway. And so we ought to live in the way that brings it about sooner. That's the way I've always understood it. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking up the, uh, the lexical entries for Speudo. Um, that's the way I've understood in the past. Yes. Okay. So these, for us, not very controversial, but for many people, this is, these are controversial conclusions, and they would say, no, 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 that can't be, especially the closer that we get to the, the extreme view that, that Geyser was giving us a, a, an example for. No, there is no faster pathway. The end comes when the end comes. Um, and to this, you know, Eric, you said there are many passages. The book of Jonah is, is one of those places where I see God's providence in action. It's a short read for anybody. You know, I, I know most people are at least somewhat familiar with it, but read the whole book and see how God interacts with Jonah, how he chooses to do something that's contrary to the will of God. He resists the will of God, but God in his sovereignty, and this gets to that kind of that discussion that you were having before. Well, are we uncomfortable with God using secondary means? God, God manipulates the whole environment. I mean, he, he sends a storm, you know, he's, he's interacting with creatures, both great and small, the great fish and the little worm. He makes this plant rise up. He sends the wind and the waves. He knows exactly how strong the storm needs to be. So these sailors will, you know, kind of respond the way that they do. And so we see God's sovereignty while people are making choices in the midst of it, ultimately to bring about his desire. I believe that the book of Jonah, and this is a, maybe a, a radical statement. I believe that that book could have been two chapters rather than four. I think when God said to Jonah, rise, go to the, the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I want you to preach, he could have stood up and went straight there but he didn't. And so it's four chapters. I think it could have been six chapters. I think Jonah, once he got barfed up on the, on the land, he could have said, I'm out of here again and, and tried to leave. And God would have, again, continued to conform things to his purpose, which I think fits with this statement in Second Peter 3, that there is, there is an end to which God is bringing things. And that's why it's so foolish for us to fight against him in some regard. Um, Greg. 
Yeah, I do have a question. I want to, and I want to go back to Second Peter chapter three. So, um, we we do see other examples of Speudo in Scripture. None of them, but other you know, no other instances of Peter using it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the le- the the dictionary definition, the lexical entry for Speudo, it definitely includes to to make haste, to hurry, but it also but there is the definition according to the BDAG um, to desire earnestly. Why should we be so quick to rule out that Peter couldn't be using Speudo to mean to look for and to earnestly desire the coming day of the Lord? Why should, why should we not? Like you, you made, the, I think you made the statement, like if you look hard enough, you can, you can find it, but that doesn't seem like it's looking that hard. Why, sh- why wouldn't that be a good interpretation? Yeah. I don't think it fits in the context as well. I don't think it fits with the usage elsewhere. Um, and even it's been a, uh, you know, you're, you're right there in the BDAG, but it has to go in order to get that definition. It has to go to outside literature. And so, um, again, contemporary literature, but outside literature. And so if the word can mean that, uh, even so it still seems to, in those cases, uh, the earnestly desiring still has a sense in which um, they can uh, speed up the, the the bringing about of that desired result. Um, and so uh, I think that, um, I mean, I, I don't know if you have some of the examples there um, of, that, I do. of that usage. Can you give some, like, th- does it give some other additional information about the, how those things are used when they mean earnestly desiring? Cause I think that that, um, I, I'm I'm going off memory, so if you've got it right in front of you, maybe you can read um, the fuller fuller. Yeah, so entry. Uh, entry two to earnestly desire Second Peter three twelve um, in parentheses Isaiah sixteen five examples from Greek authors are given by Passau under the word second volume chapter two page fifteen oh one Little and Scott. So that they don't they don't list them here, but um, I, I'm guessing perhaps the uh, the Septuagint uses it in this way as well. Um, so Isaiah 16, five from the KV, KJV and in mercy shall the throne be established and he'll sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hastening righteousness. So even still there, it uses hastening rather than earnestly desiring. In the KJV. Yeah, for sure. Um, so in what sense then, if that's an example of earnestly desiring, if we switched it there, I guess, what would it? What would that mean? Um, so uh, he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and eagerly looking to righteousness or for righteousness is how is how you would perhaps translate that. So again, what is that? I guess, what does that mean? Like, what is that describing? Is the righteousness there already, uh, or is it coming soon, or is it just a desire for it, or is it actually bringing it about? These are the, you know, these are the questions. So I guess does that make better sense in that context? And if it does, okay. Um, I, I guess you can make an argument for. I mean, assuming that this is a, um, we're, I'm going to posit that this is about Christ. He's judging and seeking judgment and looking for, desiring righteousness among men. So I, I think it fits as well. I would I would argue that um I think the context at least for me um makes me think that uh hasten or hastening is 
uh, more consistent because, you know, starting at verse eight, the issue here is that the, the coming of the Lord is not happening as soon as what people are wanting it to. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. This is verse eight, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years, like one day, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, uh, what sort of people ought you to be in conduct and uh, holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of, the, of God. Now that it makes it sound as if he's saying, if if you want this day to come sooner, if you're if you're in, if you're impatient about the coming of the Lord, then you can hasten the coming of it by doing this. So to me, I think that I think the context for me I, I, makes I'm not makes rejecting that seem, in, seem reasonable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not I'm not rejecting that outright, but I'm but trying to to take all you know. There's a reason the BDAG puts earnestly or presumably there's a reason why the BDAG puts earnestly desiring. Yeah. And I think if we were to, to follow the CSB and say something like, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and earnestly desiring the coming of the day of God? I don't, I guess I don't find that an unreasonable translation. Well, again, the, the context, um, certainly that is a sensible rendering, but Eric, you know, I, there's a reason why I wanted to include those verses in, in my reading of it. I think that that context, I read it exactly the same way you do. Um, some people think this is happening slowly. If you want it to happen faster, here's how you ought to live. And Isaiah 16, 5 uh, has a, a lexical reference. Um, this is a, a good example of, um, okay, the earnest desire that I believe that's being described um, is ex, uh, explaining that this trustworthy king who will rule in this faithful manner from David's family will be sure to make these decisions that are just and he will bring about justice he because he earnestly desires justice he will bring it about quickly and so there is a sense in which speudo uh it it includes that if that earnest desire is there he won't drag his feet about it he'll bring it about fast instead of slow so um our earnest desire can't really bring anything about faster um, God's could, if God earnestly desires to end things, he could, he could end it right now before I finish the sentence. Um, but if we earnestly desire it, then the way that we live ought to be in the way that brings the end about sooner. Whereas again, for, uh, for those who are in the camp and they might be correct, but for, you know, I'm not in that camp for those who are in the camp that everything's predetermined, the end just comes when it comes. Um, I happen to think that if the church would be serious about proclaiming the gospel to all of creation, that potentially the end could come sooner. And that's, again, very objectionable to some people. So Isaiah 16.5 and other literature, I think if we go through every single one of these, we don't see that it's it's a contrary view of saying earnestly desiring and speeding as if they're like almost opposite types of, of definitions, that one's just about what we want and then one is about actually bringing it faster. But it's that that earnest desire and the ability to bring about something faster, which is at least what Isaiah 16.5 says, that those we see why those those even if the words are slightly different, Isaiah 16.5, as an example of the Septuagint, using this same word, if we translate it as earnestly desire, is still talking about him bringing about fast rather than slow. Do you th- think that I'm 
misstating that at all. No, I would I would add one thing to it. Um, if 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 earnestly desires the right um, way to translate it, it sounds a little bit redundant because it, it sounds like he's saying looking for is what he says right before that, and then earnestly desire. Now looking for is is really kind of the same thing as saying desire this. So it almost sounds like if earnestly desire is the right translation, it almost sounds like he's saying desire it and then really desire it. Uh, I thought that at verse two, but I'm not, I'm not necessarily like, that was my, like, as I was sitting here looking at that, I went, yeah, maybe that my, my first thought as well. I guess I'm not so certain that looking for this thing and wanting it passionately, um, I'm not sure that those are as redundant as they seem at first blush as I think about this. That's fair. So, for the sake of, of time, let's move on to trying to define, again, foreknowledge uh, in particular. And um, I want to read just, again, a couple of brief definitions, and then I want us to actually look at the usage. Um, because I know that as I've had conversations with people, um, you know, our, our definitions really influence the way that we think. It's good for us to define our terms. Um, I want to read um, you know, uh, two definitions from uh, Wayne Grudem and then another one from uh, Norman Geisler. And again, both of these guys are going to possibly bring in um, stuff about election, um, but it's tied to this issue. Like if, if the end is fixed, but the pathways to it are not necessarily fixed, I believe that this starts to at least make sense of a lot of the biblical language. And I think where it, it, um, where it offends people or where the difficulty uh, in conversation or where things kind of go off the rails is not because it's bumping up against biblical passages. It's because it's bumping up against these definitions. Um, we've defined some of these terms in ways that are, um, they don't allow certain things to happen. And so, um, again, depending on which camp we're in. So that's why we just need to, I want to just put these on the table so we can kind of see the types of things that are, that are there. So Wayne Grudem's definition of foreknowledge, very brief. It's, uh, he says, uh, quote, relating to the doctrine of election, the personal relational knowledge by which God thought of certain people in a saving relationship to himself before creation. This is to be distinguished from the mere knowledge of facts about a person. So in this case, foreknowledge is almost exclusively relational, almost exclusively tied to election, and not about omniscience, um, and not about knowledge of, of facts about the future. And I bring this definition in, um, not necessarily because it's good or bad. I like Wayne Grudem uh, just as much as I like uh, Norman Geiser. Maybe not as much, almost as much. I like Wayne Grudem a lot. Um, uh, but I want to bring this in because foreknowledge, we, we, in English, we use knowledge in more than one way. It's not just about information. It's also about relationships. I know you guys. It's not, that doesn't mean that I just know a, a, um, a statement of propositions about you guys, but we know each other in a, in a relational, you know, we're, we're friends and we've, we've known each other for a while. And so when we talk about foreknowledge, there is a relational aspect and there's an informational aspect. And I, um, again, if maybe there's, something else that we should also put on the table, but I at least want to be very clear that when we talk about foreknowledge, sometimes these things are getting blurred, but there's information and relational. These are biblical ways of using it. And uh, again, agree, disagree, clarifications you'd like to bring. I agree with those. And I think the relational aspect is going to be really important when we talk about Romans 8 um, and Romans 11, because I think, um, I, I believe, this is my opinion, I think Romans 8 has been grossly misunderstood. Uh, I know that's a bold statement coming from a nobody like me, but um, but I as I read Romans eight and as I read um, uh, about those whom God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Uh, I I think 
I think we need to uh, read that in a very specific way that's defined later on in the same book. So I, I, I look at, there is definitely a difference between relational and, uh, and just plain knowledge. Yeah, fair enough. So at least those things are on the table. And um, uh, so I also want to read his definition of omniscience because for our conversation, we're not, we're not trying to get into the doctrine of election, although we'll, we'll get close to that. And it's not like it's completely out of bounds, but we're talking specifically about information. Uh, at least that's the, the primary way that we're framing this, this particular episode. So Grudem's definition for omniscience is, uh, quote, the doctrine that God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. Um, just like Grude, uh, Geisler used some of that language about actual worlds and possible worlds. And, you know, I don't know if that still <laughs> stimulates the uh, multiverse type of thinking, but he, he knows all things actual and possible. So at least a theologian that is more highly regarded than all three of us put together, um, that's his definition. And he brings in these ideas of actual and possible. That's how he at least interacts with some of these conditional type statements that we've talked about, um, like with what Mordecai was saying to Esther and, and other types of things. Again, fair that that's on the table of actual and possible. We all agree that there's, and again, Grudem is by no means an open theist. So he's not saying that there's openness, but there are actual things and then there's possible things and God knows all of them. We're all together so far. Yep. looks like it. Okay. One last thing, one last definition from Geisler before we look at the actual biblical usage. Um, his definition of omniscience says God knows everything, past, present, and future. He knows the actual and the possible. Only the impossible or the contradictory is outside the knowledge of God. Can you read that again? <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, quote, God knows everything past, present, and future. He knows the actual and the possible. Only the impossible, parentheses, the contradictory, is outside the knowledge of God. I, I don't care for that second second half of that. Um, it, what does he mean by no? Is what I would first ask. Um, Yeah, I, I would want to interrogate him on that a little bit. Well, unfortunately, I won't. I, I will not tread into trying to answer that question. I think for us, we need to try and define what it means to know, and so we can do that. But um, I don't. If if he defined that somewhere, I'm, I'm sure he did. I just don't have that readily at my fingertips. But Eric, um, I just yeah. So it's curious. Like, what does he mean by God cannot know the impossible? Um, sure. Well, I mean, if if we're gonna if and I will make the statement that 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 logic comes from god god defines perhaps yeah um well could, couldn't he mean just simply that god doesn't know impossibilities as actualities he could never know an impossibility as an actuality is that would, would you guys do you think that's a reasonable way to interpret the words maybe um certainly he knows what will be actual and what will be possible um, I think, and the definition that I, you know, that I sent to you guys in advance for your consideration um, of knowledge is very simple. It's just three words, justified, true belief. Um, a contradiction is necessarily false. Uh, and if logic comes from God, which I, I mean, all things come from God, um, you can't know something that's false. And so it's 
God doesn't know anything that's false. And so that would be the only, uh, you know, Geyser is not a limp. He doesn't try to limit omniscience in any way. Um, but that's the only thing that God couldn't know is impossible things. I, I do think that he gives a similar answer. Like when, you know, you know, people think that they're stumping theologians are like, you know, is God omnipotent? Is he so powerful that he can make a stone so big that even he couldn't lift it? You know, these types of questions. Um, so, you know, could God make a square circle? Well, that's a contradictory thing. So it's, it's not really a limit on God's power to say that he can't do the impossible. Um, can God cause himself to cease to exist? Can God lie? Can God change? You know, the Bible is clear. He can't do these things. These things are impossible. Um, and so I think that his definition of, of, of uh, omniscience likewise says, we're not saying that God knows what a square circle looks like. We're not saying that God knows what it would like, what the world would be like if he didn't exist or something like that. Yeah, these, these are, are impossible. Absurdities. Yes. Okay. So these are Fair impossible enough. to know. I think that's what he would say. But again, I'm, I am speculating because he's not, not here to. And if that's himself. what he meant, I agree with that. Okay. Greg, you got anything else to say before? Uh, yeah, no, I'll, uh, yeah. If, if that's, if that's where he was going, I I'm, I'm comfortable going there. So he also includes in, in, and there's again, all this stuff hopefully will come together. And I, you know, um, uh, in, a, in a moment, but uh, he makes an argument from the eternality of God. And this is where I think uh, philosophical speculation um, has perhaps polluted our definition of, of omniscience, but I, I'll be curious to hear what you guys say. This is also from uh, Geisler. He says that, quote, his knowledge of the world, God's knowledge of the world is from eternity. An eternal being knows eternally. An eternal knowing is not limited by time. Thus, God's knowledge is not limited by time. He knows the future with the same eternal glance by which he knows the past and present. As a result, there is no problem with foreseeing future events before they occur. God simply sees them in his eternal present. Other theologians have said it this way, that God exists in the eternal now. And that explains his perfect foreknowledge. And it's why our choices, no matter how free they might seem to us, or, or if they are genuinely free or whatever, God knows them because he lives in that eternal now. Is that how you guys think about foreknowledge or would you have pushback on that? Can you read that one more time? There's sure. way too many instances of eternal. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. No problem. God's knowledge of the world is from eternity. An eternal being knows eternally. And eternal knowledge is not limited by time. Thus, God's knowledge is not limited by time. He knows the future with the same eternal glance by which he knows the past and present. As a result, there is no problem with foreseeing future events before they occur. God simply sees them in his eternal present. Probably true. I am true. very uncomfortable with that. Okay. Can you, uh, <laughs> can you explain what uh, makes you very uncomfortable? Yeah. It never says that anywhere. <laughs> I mean, I, I am... I am very uncomfortable with definitions that are based on philosophical um, purely. Now, philosophy has its place. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not demonizing philosophy. I, everybody's a philosopher to some extent. But I'm very uncomfortable using definitions that are purely philosophical and that, that seem to, at least on the surface, contradict or, or maybe contradict, not, maybe not even a, the best word, but seem to be. I don't know, not naturally fitting with what Scripture plainly says. I'm this whole thing about, um, you know, God. God knows the future because He's already there. I, I am 
I can't, biblically speaking, I, I don't know that I can um, go along with that. Great I mean, there is, there is something naturally uncomfortable about trying to deal with something that is so unnatural, which is it, eternality, right? Um, wrapping your head around that many instances of eternal or eternality, um, it, it definitely makes the makes the mechanism smoke up here a little. Yeah. So could I could I just share uh, this? This is again I, maybe um maybe I'm shooting myself in the foot here, um, but uh, as I read scripture. Um, you know, I, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that God, and I, I'm using philosophically improper words here um, and phrases, but I'm uncomfortable with the idea that God um, presently um, exists outside of time. And um, how I would describe that, and again, if, if you're if you're philosophically minded, you're going to think this is the worst way of describing this, but for the sake of like coherency. Um, I'll just say it this way. I, I am uncomfortable with the idea that God created the universe and then remained outside of the universe. Um, it remained outside of time. I think everything in scripture that I see, and maybe I'm, I, I will be honest, may, I could be misunderstanding this or misreading this. Everything in scripture that I read presupposes that God is within time um, and that God interacts with people in time. God speaks of things in the past. Uh, he speaks of, of things that he's doing presently. He speaks of things that he will do in the future. Um, it even says, I think it's in, um, it's in one of Peter's epistles where Peter says, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while Noah was building the ark. Now that could be anthropomorphism, but it sounds as if, as if God is in time experiencing time and waiting patiently. I mean, waiting patiently, you can't do that unless you're, unless you exist in time. Um, at least that's, that's how I understand it. There's even a weird verse in revelation. I think it's in revelation, um, chapter eight, where John says there was silence in heaven for a half an hour. Now that may seem totally insignificant, but it sounds like if you just take it at face value, it sounds like that heaven is a temporal place. Heaven experiences time, uh, so I don't know. I'm, I could be maybe I'm not as philosophically brilliant as you know some other guys, but as I read scripture, it seems I, I get the strong impression that God exists within time. Uh, I'm not saying that He has always dwelt in time, but I I think that God really does dwell in time. So I'm I'm under the impression that God foreknows the future not because He's already there experiencing it um but for for other reasons so that's that's my two cents and that's all it is is just yeah. just my opinion and i i would i wouldn't i definitely wouldn't go as far as as saying that um you know god interacts with humans in time but i don't have a problem with him existing outside of time because i don't think he's bound by time he's not getting older he's not um so um, but what all does that mean? I don't know, man. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, pretty handicapped. Well, I would say I, I wouldn't use the word bound. I would say that that when when God created the universe, which means when God created time, He chose to enter that universe. 
he chose to be a part of it. Um, he, well, actually, he, he upholds the universe. He holds everything together. He's, he's the sustainer of the universe. So I guess in one sense, he's, he has to be in it. Um, I don't I just, think you to be, I don't, I, I, again, we are from my position, understand we, I am venturing well into speculation, but I don't think you need to be subject to it, to uphold it. Um, well, I guess my, my point is just, I think God made the choice to, to in, enter time when he created it. Did he have to do that? No, I don't think he had to. I would say in the, in the person of Christ, absolutely. You know, in the incarnation of Christ, absolutely. I, uh, but God, the father, um, I'm much more comfortable saying is not in any way bound, supersedes is outside of time. For yeah, how, I, how else could he make the sun stand? You know, he stops time. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess I'm a little bit more comfortable than you are. Is all is my only point. I'm not trying to convince you of anything. No, I get I get what you're saying. Well, I mean, stopping the sun though wouldn't require him being outside of time. You know, I think he could. I think he could do that within the universe. But anyway, I know. Believe me, I'm. I admit, I'm making some speculations too. I'm just maybe I'm taking scripture too literally, and maybe maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Probably some. If there's philosophers watching this, they'd go, ah. Yeah, my my understanding of like the Revelation verse, because John experienced a half an hour between between visions, doesn't um, again isn't um, doesn't mean that you know. Yeah, well, again, I, I, I'm don't, not using I don't. That as some I don't see the con- flat argument. I mean, it's no, not, I, I don't hear you. Just I'm a, just. I was just responding. Yeah. No, so I, I understand. Dealing with issues of eternality and the atemporality of God. So we everything that we know is in time. And so to, to think about stuff being outside of time is so contrary to us. To, to think, you know, we have a beginning. Um, even when, when our uh, passages talk about giving us the gift of eternal life, that's not really a good translation. Maybe everlasting life, because for us it begins, whereas God doesn't seem to have a beginning. So that which doesn't begin... Um, is only that which is truly eternal. So even our everlasting life isn't really eternal life. It, it is. It will not end, but it did begin. And so God is different in us in this regard, and that's why it becomes so perplexing and mind mind bending. But certainly from our perspective, creatures in time, um, and the way that God talks to us, um, you know, the beginning of the Bible begins in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, and so time begins with that. Um, and so, of course, God exists outside of time because he had to have exist outside of that to, in order to make it. Of course, he exists outside of the universe because he had to, you know, make it. But Eric, I, I, I am with that. you. And every time, every time I read, uh, you know, the philosophical speculations about what it means that God is atemporal, not bound by time, um, it, it is. It's, it's, it's now like, okay, we're really starting to speculate and draw together all these logical conclusions. And that's where I start to get uncomfortable because now our definitions of knowledge seem to uh, go against what this is saying. And, you know, one example um, is in Genesis 22, verse 12. I know that, uh, you know, people, if, if God knows everything in the eternal now, he can never learn anything. But here in Genesis chapter 22, verse 12, Uh, God is speaking to uh, Abraham, who's about to sacrifice Isaac. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And of course, if I take this literally, God's saying, now I know because of this thing that happened in time, all of my 
philosophical definitions and everything else will say, no, no, God didn't actually learn anything in this moment. Nothing changed for God. Um, he's just using that language. It's just a figure of speech or whatever else. I have difficulty with those types of interpretations because now I'm, I'm using a philosophical definition as my lens to read this and say, this can't mean what it seems to mean. It has to mean something else because of the atemporal nature of God. Whereas God could have just said, I've always known this, but now you know, like you learned, I didn't learn. I always knew. I knew exactly what you were going to do. But instead God says, now I know. How do you guys deal with a passage like this? Um, Genesis twenty two twelve. Like what is, did God learn something in that moment or how, how do you interpret Genesis twenty two twelve? I had that in my notes. Um, I was wondering if you were going to touch on that. Well, uh, again, I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to give you my, uh, my opinion on this. And, um, I'm not claiming that this view is unchallengeable because it definitely isn't. But, um, I, I think it's, I think it's wrong to say that God acquired, um, greater mental knowledge uh, as as he saw Abraham raise the knife to slay Isaac. Uh, God knows men's hearts. And according to Hebrews eleven nineteen, Abraham, uh, he had already made up his mind to, to, to sacrifice Isaac. And his reasoning was, if I do, then God can bring him back from the dead. So I'm, I'm actually not going to lose him permanently. Um, God's going to bring him back and God's going to keep his promises. Uh, so. Uh, Abraham uh, resolved to do that in his heart. God knew his heart. Uh, therefore, we can we can reasonably conclude that God knew that Abraham would be willing to sacrifice Isaac. But when he says, now I know, one possible way to understand that is um, differentiating between, um, you know, there's different kinds of knowledge. So one kind of knowledge is mental knowledge. And I'm just calling it that because I don't know what else to call it. But mental knowledge could be described as you are you're gaining greater, you know, greater um, understanding of something. Uh, but then there's experiential knowledge, and experiential knowledge is different because you can you can foreknow that something's going to happen uh, before it happens, but you can't experience it until it happens. So if there's a there's a difference between mental knowledge and experiential knowledge and it could be and again i'm 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 i admit that i'm doing some speculating here uh, but it it could be that god uh came to experience the event he came to have experiential knowledge uh and he's not necessarily talking about mental knowledge there so that's that's one possibility i realize there are um there are others i've read other other interpretations but that's that's my lame uh interpretation and um if you know if someone has a better one i i they wish they probably do i would love to love to hear that greg do you have any thoughts on genesis yeah. 22 yeah i mean if i were to stand up and interpret it i i would probably say something along the lines of it you know what this is trying to communicate is it's it's now been proven so uh, whether whether we want to use experiential knowledge, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not comfortable with the now God came to know or came to. Uh, there's some other things that that bumps into. 
some of the theological concepts that that bumps into. And so I, I just wouldn't phrase it that way. Not that I'm, I'm not saying you're wrong. I just think I wouldn't phrase it that way. I could be um, wrong. <laughs> uh, well, maybe you are. That's not my point. Um, but it, yeah, it, it has now been proven. And so not that that's a perfectly satisfactory, it's not even a perfectly satisfactory answer to me, um, but that's what I would say. Yeah. So a passage like this in the Old Testament, and then a passage like uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, which talks about Jesus in the incarnation, learning obedience. There's a, a statement, I think it's in Luke's gospel, about how he, uh, Jesus the child uh, grew in wisdom and stature, um, uh, very similar to what was said about, uh, I think it was Samuel in the Old Testament. And so, you know, the verses like this, I, I don't want to just have like a theological wave of the hand and say I've got these philosophical definitions. Um, Doctrines like the incarnation, you know, we, we, we had our holiday issue, but the incarnation itself is something I, I love thinking about. You know, you think about this eternal God comes a man, God doesn't change, but that, that's pretty big. You know, I mean, that's a, it's a big thing, right? God takes on flesh. Now for eternity past, it seems like God didn't exist as a man. And now for eternity future, God does exist as a man, this glorified man, Christ Jesus. Um, mind boggling concepts to really think about. Um, and of course it doesn't, it doesn't contradict scripture, but if we're saying, well, what does this, what does this mean? Sometimes we get these things, well, God can't change. Like, right. He can't, but he did become a man. He did humble himself and then he was exalted. Those are something changed, right? I mean, those are, those are things that happened and we understand them in time. We experience them in time. I, I suppose God could have, you know, and the, the answer is God in the eternal now, all of that to him was eternally present. So from, from our perspective, it's changed, but from his perspective, it isn't. Um, and maybe that is the answer. Like I say, you know, the, these types of speculations, but when he says something like this, now I know, um, the language itself, I want to try and be as fair and even handed with the language that scripture uses. And so I think potentially because the atemporality is so outside, it's not just for us. I mean, some people that talk about it, they might think that they have a greater grasp of it, but these are guys in time just like we are. So everybody's, we're, we're, we're all waiting well beyond our depth when we talk about um, eternality and atemporality and all these other kinds of things. So we can sound real good if we say it real confident. Um, and sometimes the more confusing of a statement that you make, people go, wow, that was deep. You're like, what does he mean? I have no idea what he meant. I'm going to try uh, to do that It's so, <laughs> super deep. Um, <laughs> You're just but, starting? Yeah. Oh. Um, so let's get real simple, okay? Um, what does it mean to know? And Eric, I agree with you. There is experiential knowledge. Um, it seems that Jesus, Hebrews 5, 8, learned something as he became a man. He, he learned. A lot of people are really uncomfortable with that. But again, that's, the, that's what the Bible says. That's what it's inspired to say. Um, there were passages about Jesus. And I think, Eric, you brought this up before. Um, maybe it was you, Greg. Um, but, uh, you know, the Jesus in time when asked about when the end would be, he said he didn't know. So there were things that he said he didn't know in time that, um, Again, throw at least some difficulties on the philosophical answers, which look really good on paper. But when I read the scriptures, there are these passages that bump up against it. And I, again, there's always an answer for everything, right? There's, there's always, every system has an answer for every problem passage. Um, but these are seeming problems. So a definition of knowledge that I sent to you guys, and I, I'm open to other suggestions. I sent it to you in advance just because if you've got something better, um, the philosophical definition that I learned of a, in, a, in a studying epistemology, what does it mean to know something? We all use this word. We all mean something by it, but let's actually define it. What does it mean to know? 
I think that you have to check all these three boxes. This isn't a definition that began with me. It's something I learned when I was studying in the philosophy department in my undergrad. Knowledge is justified, true belief. Justified, true belief. If you don't have justified, true belief, any of those one, any of those three things are missing. Any one of them are missing. You don't know something. So the first one, justification, you have to have a reason for what you know. So if I asked you guys, is there an even or an odd number of ducks in the lower peninsula? And one of you advocates for even and one of you advocates for odd. One of you is correct, but neither of you know it. Does that make sense? Because neither of you has any justification for your answer. You're just guessing. Any pushback on that? Can you, you think you can know something that you're just guessing about? No, not, not based on your definition, no. But even on your definition, I mean, do you think you can know something that you're just guessing about? You could be accidentally correct, but is that knowledge? You could be accidentally correct, but that's, but that's, a, that's accidental knowledge, I suppose. Not, not true knowledge. Yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't have a whole lot of pushback yet. Okay. Um, now I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm waiting for No, I, I'm just waiting. <laughs> so for me, as I hear this, um, it, this sounds right on the edge of satisfactory. Hmm. Um, there is something, and maybe it lies in the, in the justified. Um, there's something not concrete enough in this statement. And again, it, it might be my miss, my lack of applying justified. Um, it, it seems like there ought to be something a little bit more tangible in your definition, but again, right on the edge of satisfactory. Hmm. But That's again, it's probably, it's probably my lack of ph philosophical training, right? Like uh, I'm just a dude. So. Sure. Um, okay. Well, I mean, we can leave it there. I, I think that again, for me, um, even if, even on just the edge of satisfactory, at least we're getting somewhere. Um, I think in order to know something, you have to have a reason for believing what you believe. Second thing, it has to be true. You can't know something that's false. You can think something that's false. You can believe something that's false, but you can't know something that's false. Would you guys agree with that qualification? You can know that it's false. Sure. Can but that is know? true that it's false. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I'll go along with that. And then the, the last qualification is you have to actually believe it. And that means that you have to have it in your cognitive faculties. Sometimes people, you know, don't know something like, hey, do you know what the answer is to this question? And, and they go, uh, and then someone says it and they go, oh yeah, I knew that. Well, you didn't know it because it wasn't in your, it wasn't in your mind. Maybe you've heard it before and you forgot it, but in order to know it, you have to you have to hold it in your awareness. There's to, to know something it has, you have to have justification. It has to be true. And you have to be able to actually hold it in your cognitive abilities. Um, push back on that. Or does that seem reasonable? Seems reasonable to me. Yeah, it's reasonable. So I had presented that to you guys. Um, I mean, do you have an alternative for us to discuss? I, I didn't, um, you know, the people, like I say, use these terms all the time. But when I talk about knowledge, th that's the definition that in my mind, I've carried it around for years and years and years. I haven't found anything better. Um, I don't know how you could, it's kind of like, you know, the, the mousetrap. Could I eliminate any of these things? I don't think I can eliminate any of these and still have it work. 
and I don't think I need to add anything else. Like I, to me, this seems like the best def definition for, for knowledge that I've ever encountered, but I'm open to other possibilities if you want to put one on the table. I guess the only thing that I would say is, um, as we, and I'm, I'm happy to use this as the definition uh, for knowledge. I might want to just add for human knowledge, um, because as we start talking about what God knows, which is kind of the, the point of our, our conversation, um, we've already said that, or we've already assented to the idea that God knows all future things. Mm -hmm. um, so did God have justified true belief in all future possibilities? Okay, great with that. Um, then how do we apply that to the fact that he says, I now know? Didn't, didn't he already know um, with, with Abraham? So th that's where that's where maybe I would just want to say um, human knowledge is justified true belief. Um, now, what does you know? How does that differ from divine justified true belief? I, I don't know. I think that that is an absolutely fair question, and I'll explain how I would answer that, uh, especially as I'm presenting you know my my thoughts on this. Um, and of course, this is speculation. Um, so, you know, you guys can feel free to, to push back on any of this if you think I'm off in the weeds. Uh, but similar to what Eric was saying, that there are different types of knowledge, even our, these, you know, eminent, uh, well-known theologians talk about God knows both the actual and the possible. Um, I do think that sometimes, uh, especially as time progresses, things move from the realm of possibility to the realm of actuality. And so where I push back is that um, all these definitions say that God knows everything from the eternal now. I do believe that as God has interact, is interacting with time, that uh, a statement like Genesis twenty two twelve, God did have justified true belief about both the actual up to that point and all the possible from that point. And then as time unfolds, uh, God isn't learning something new, but in the mind of God, uh, something moved from possible, the different things that Abraham could have done in that moment, to the actual. And so did God learn anything? No. Some would say he did, and then that makes it impossible. Although then I look back at Hebrews 5.8 and say, well, I mean, Jesus learned things. So I don't know that, uh, you know, our definitions of all that stuff, you know, this isn't like some like blaringly wrong theological thing because Biblical language uses that, but I still wouldn't say that God learned necessarily, but that accounts for this now I know. God knew the possibilities, put Abraham in that situation. Abraham actually exercised his free will. He chose to trust God um, and to do what God said, and God stopped him. And then when God says, now I know, because he saw exactly what God, uh, Abraham was going to do, he actualized one of the possibilities in the mind of God. And so God didn't learn anything in the sense that his knowledge increased, but something moved from possible to actual. That's how I would answer it. And I hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, <laughs> um, I don't know that I can say it differently, but that at least makes sense to me. Uh, push back on that, or does that um, get anywhere close to to offering an explanation of the question that you're asking? Because I think it's a good one. I would, I would actually push back on those who would challenge you on that. Um, and the reason is because I know what people are going to say. They're going to say, well, no, God has greater knowledge than that, and God God never knows anything um, at one time as a, you know, a possibility and, and another time as a actuality. Um, you, you got to remember, people that 
strongly argue for um, the, you know, for a view that's against the view that you just described, Joe, are basically going entirely by philosophy, philosophical arguments. Again, I'm not demonizing philosophy. I, I use philosophy too. Um, uh, but even this definition if, is a philosophical definition. Justified true belief is a philosophical sure, definition. Yeah. Yeah. But if I, I think you're, I think the way that you interpreted Genesis 22 12 is just the obvious way. I, and I, and my, my definition or my interpretation of it, I guess, was, was uh, pretty much in line with what you said. Um, and that's not why I'm agreeing with you, though. Um, but I, th- I think because you, yeah, how, how, I mean, how could you look at it in any other way? And to look at it in another way means you have to bring certain presuppositions. You have to bring some baggage with you and say, no, God didn't really mean that. Or even worse, when people say, when God says, now I know, that means now you know, Abraham, mm-hmm. which is the exact opposite of what the verse is, is obviously saying. So, um, no, I, I think your I think your uh, your interpretation is is the more honest one. I think it's consistent with I think it's just obviously what the text is saying. And these uh, other people that would, you know, be really upset about that, um, I think the burden of proof rests on them, because uh, that you know they have to prove that the verse doesn't really mean what it's plainly saying. So that's I, I agree with what you I agree with your interpretation. I think it was, I think it was right on. Yeah, I I agree. I would, um, especially as you hold potentiality and actuality again, philosophical concepts in your mind. I I don't feel comfortable saying, well, it's the obvious answer because if it was the obvious answer, we wouldn't even be discussing it. So um, perhaps again, uh, my my faculties fall short. But I and again, I, I as Eric's statement fell in line with that. I think that proven or that um, I, I think. I would like to think that my answer fell at least in line with, with the same in, in the same thing. So um, I appreciate your guys' thoughts. And like I said, I'm, I'm, it's just the three of us here. So, you know, of course other people would articulate it differently. And, and if, if the burden of proof lays on them, which I, Eric, I agree with you, we're not going to adequately express that. So we're going to m- keep moving forward. If, we, if we're in agreement, we'll keep moving forward. Um, one of the, the dangerous speculations and presuppositions that I think comes in, it does come from that kind of eternality. And so, um, I believe, I said in our last episode that I believe that, um, you know, quote unquote, typical Calvinism that, that falls under that umbrella, what Geisler would have articulated as the extreme sovereignty view. I believe that they were, uh, had a good, uh, intention. There, there are a number of passages that talk about, um, how God knows everything. We don't want to limit his knowledge. We don't want to limit his um, ability to, to, to bring about his ends and purposes. But I think in doing so, we limited ourselves and our theology by what, what makes sense to us. And I want to give you guys an analogy um, that I think is helpful because I actually think that God's sovereignty is higher than the extreme view of so- sovereignty but I think it's less objectionable, especially from like, you know, you guys aren't in that camp. I think that you guys, I think will agree, but maybe you won't. Um, I do like chess. Uh, I, I, I don't know, Greg, you and I have played chess like once or twice. Eric, uh, are you a chess player? Is that something you enjoy doing? Um, I like to do it, but I stink at it. Sure. Um, so I'm not, I'm not claiming to be good at it. <laughs> I'm just claiming to enjoy it. Um, but, uh, in, 
some of the other reading that I've done about, you know, I don't always just talk about theology. I have looked into some stuff about chess in the past. And um, two, two names stand out to me. There are others that have done this, but a guy named Paul Morphy, another guy at last name of Pillsbury, not the Doughboy, but uh, Pillsbury is his last name. These guys um, used to play blindfolded chess and would play blindfolded chess, not even just one game at a time, but multiple games at a time. And uh, it's incredible. Like, you know, again, I, I think about how my mind works and how it's hard enough for me to play chess when <laughs> I'm looking at the board. Um, these guys could play not just one, but multiple games of chess at the same time and, and win them all. Um, that impresses me. Does that impress you guys? Absolutely. Yeah. It's impressive. I can't even get my mind around how that could possibly happen if I'm being honest. But what if I were to tell you guys that, um, and this isn't true, but what if I were to tell you that, that Paul Morphy, for example, the reason he was able to do that is because he actually for, you know, he predetermined all the moves and these, these people were actually just moving, you know, they, it was all for show. Like he put on the blindfold, but they had already discussed this and they'd, all the moves were already predetermined. And so they just were going to go through all the moves and there's going to be some things that he was going to respond to. And he's gonna be like, Oh, I can't believe you did this or whatever. Uh, but it's all for dramatic effect, but really the ends were always, they were determined from beforehand. Would you be more or less impressed with that? Far less impressed. And it sounds like some people's view of God, but I'll let you, I think I'll does. let you get to that. Well, that's the, that's where I'm going. But I mean, Greg, is that a fair statement? Would you be more or less impressed with Paul Morphy's ability as a chess player? Yeah, I, I'd be less impressed. Um, all analogies break down somewhere, and I think they that do. definitely that breaks down before. I'm not the extreme Calvinist; I don't hold that view, but I think that breaks down before their their argument. But yeah, I would be less. Can you tell me where this breaks oh, down? It breaks down because in in the Paul Morphy, they sat down, discussed, pre decided together, sure. and now they're playing this out. That that's that's not the view that um, that's not the view that the extreme uh, side of that camp would hold. So. God determined in and of himself. He didn't counsel with anybody else, but in and of himself, he counseled that. And so, sure, as the analogy goes, there is no conversation with other uh, people, but he has the ability. He could have done things that way, but I think God is smarter than that. And, um, and so he, I believe, created a world in which he actually does interact with. And so um, the way that I see uh, knowledge fits with these definitions that we read before. These are the prominent, eminent theologians. This is, these things have been tossed around for a while. God knows the actual and the possible. I agree with that. Justified true belief. God holds it in his mind. He knows it. It is justified because God knows everything. There's nothing that escapes his notice. Everything that can be known, God knows. So he's justified. It's the aspect in the middle, that true statement, that again, we have to rely on some truths that are not included in scripture, but these are philosophical truths um, of what truth values of statements. So any, uh, the, the technical term for it is a disjunctive statement, any kind of an either or type of a statement where you have multiple possibilities. Um, the truth value of that statement is true as long as you satisfy one of them. If I say I'm either at the store or I'm at home, uh, the truth value of that is true if I am at the store, but not at home or at home, but not at the store. That was still, it's true either way. The only way it's false is if I'm outside and, you know, uh, uh, or I'm at a football game. Okay. 
then now it's false because I said I'm at the store, I'm at home, but it's some off the board option. So because God knows all the possibilities, and as we move through time, another analogy that it, just in my mind, this makes sense. Uh, I view as we move through time, it's almost like this zipper that is taking this, like on the one end, there's this, just this branching possibility tree that God knows that I can't get my head around, but that makes sense of all these conditional statements that God makes. If you do this, this is what'll happen. If you do this, this is what'll happen. If you do this, I'm going to do this. And if you do this, I'll do this other thing. If you would have done this, this is how it would have gone, but instead you did this. And so this is why it's going this way. All those types of decision trees. I can't, I can't make a sense of all that. But first Corinthians 10, 13, you could sin or you could take the way of escape. That's included in this decision tree. You could obey me or you could disobey me. That's included in this decision tree. Romans 6, 7, and 8, um, where it talks about, you know, no longer present your members as slaves to unrighteousness, but present your members as slaves of righteousness. There's branching possibilities in this decision tree. And as we move through history, as we move through time, there's like this zipper that is creating an, the actual line behind it, if that makes sense. The decision tree is closing because decisions are actually being made. And I believe that there is genuine freedom or openness to some degree. However, I don't think that these things all lead to different paths. God has fixed something at the end that he is responding and interacting and reacting and ordaining and providentially working to bring about all of his ends. We talked about in our last episode that no one can resist his will. I don't think any of us think that that means that people can't do anything that is contrary to God's will. Do you, do you guys think that God, that people do things that are contrary to God's will? All the time. Yeah. So on the extreme sovereignty view, which again, none of us hold to, it begins to become incoherent, I think, because even disobedience is actually obedience. And then God is pretending to be upset about things that he actually wants to happen because it ends in maximal glory. On this view, God is upset, not because his end is in doubt, not because he won't achieve his purposes, but because of other things that the Bible says that God cares about what he has made and sin is damaging. And so when people disobey God, it's not that he's upset that his end is somehow in danger or he's nervous about what they've done, but it's because he exercises compassion towards what he has made. And he knows that when we take the long way, when we do the wrong thing, when we sin instead of obey, when we do the things that, that bring death to the world, God is grieved about that, not because his ultimate ends are in danger, but because of all the pain and destruction and death that it brings. And God isn't for that. God is, is not desiring those things. And could, and could so we to say, me, Joe, that God is grieved because things didn't have to be that way? Yes. Simple as that, right? Yes. And so when God, you know, tone of voice, I, I mentioned it in these discussions before, I say it to people a lot. Tone of voice isn't inspired. You know, we can read the same passages with different tones of voice. The beginning part, when, when God, when the fall happens and God says, what have you done? To me, that's like a disappointed parent. Not, he's not confused. He's not asking the question like, what, you know, I don't know what you did. So tell me what you did. He's saying, what have you done? Like, you don't, I told you that you don't want to go this way. And now you've set us on this path. This is not a good one. You don't want to know evil. You don't want to know these things. Like this is not the good path. But because God is sovereign and he creates the parameters, I believe the freedom is a genuine freedom. And so God is um, grieved 
And even it says regrets making people because we so often use that freedom in ways that are contrary to the good. And so, um, like I said, Jonah's an example. You think of God made a promise. He's going to bring his people into the promised land. When they disobeyed him, he kills that entire generation out in the wilderness and then brings in another generation. So who gets to participate in the promises does matter based on our choices. That's, I think, another example of how if they would have just obeyed him instead of grumbling against him, they could have brought about the, the fulfillment of that promise sooner, 40 years sooner. They wouldn't have had to have a whole generation die out in the wilderness. I think those are actual uh, or at least they, for them, they were actual possibilities. And then because that zip, because of the decisions they made, now it is actual. And so before us, likewise, are questions that I'm not an Arminian in the sense that I think that our decisions are a full-blown, uh, like, you know, extreme Arminian or extreme uh, open theist, where I think that, you know, our decisions somehow could thwart God's plan or that he could somehow be wrong, that we would ever introduce some off the board option that God didn't foresee coming or something like that. And I don't believe um, that either. Um, and I, yeah, again, I don't think anybody's in here, but I, sometimes when people hear me expressing this, they go, okay, well then, then God could be wrong. No, no, you don't understand how smart God is. It's just like Paul Morphy, he's not going to lose these games, like his brain and the way that he's working in that situation. He's this, it's not like a regular person. <laughs> so he, you know, he's, he's doing some, God's not like us. He's so far above us. And so his knowledge is so much deeper than ours. And his interaction is so much different than the way that we interact that for us, it's hard to even make sense of these things. And yet he has justified true belief because he knows all of the possible solutions. It's always true. And then a passage like Genesis twenty two twelve, as that zipper's going, he says, now I know because now it's actual. God always knew what he would do no matter what Abraham did. So he's not really responding in the sense that he's like waiting to see. That's one of the things that guys, guys kind of waiting to see. He's not really waiting to see. God already knows the path. Um, but I do think that it's, uh, uh, again, open in the pathway to the fixed end. And that's how I think that the end can come sooner or later. If we obey, we get there sooner or later. Um, it affects us along the way. It doesn't affect God's overall plan. God doesn't need us to do something in order for him to succeed. Um, he will succeed with or without us. Um, but then it's an invitation. It's a genuine invitation to us to participate in what he's doing, which I think is is a beautiful uh, reconciliation or uh, um, bringing together of all these various themes in my mind. But again, often people aren't as excited to hear about it as, uh, as I am to talk about it. So again, thoughts that you have or areas in there of what I'm describing that you would push back on, or is there errors in my thinking that you can help me to see? Um, I think you, I think your definition was uh, very good, very well stated. I, Joe, I'm not, for once, I'm not sure if I disagree with anything you're saying. Um, I'm but, astonished. Um, you, uh, you, had, you had said um, something that I just want to give some biblical um, support to. You said God can't be wrong about anything that he says. Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 21, he says, You may say in your heart, how will we know the word, word which the Lord has not spoken? And he says in verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And the implication is, if a prophet says something that doesn't come to pass, it can't be from God because God would never say something that doesn't end up coming to pass. In other words, God can never be wrong about the things that he says about the future. So this is just one verse out of many where 
that prove uh, that that God can ever can never be wrong about anything that He says. Yes, and that's verses like that. And again, there are many. Is why I'm not an open theologian. Uh, God is correct. He does perfectly know. There is no limit to His knowledge. The only place I think that most of these definitions push back is that God does, as time progresses, things do move from potential to actual. Um, but the end is still determined because of passages like this, in my in my view, at least that I'm putting on the table right now. Greg, you have any additional yeah, thoughts? No, yeah, fair enough. I, I mean, seems reasonable. Yeah, um, just um, maybe uh, just to again, I'm, I'm just there's so many scriptures that are coming into my mind, and I, I obviously we can't go through all of them, but um, you know, the idea that there's different paths uh, that can be taken to reach God's intended end. I see that throughout uh, throughout Scripture. For example, uh, remember when Israel was in the wilderness, uh, God um, saw Israel's rebellion, and God was very angry with, with Israel. And he told Moses, he said, step away from them so I can destroy them all and then start over with you. And uh, to me, that it, as I read that, it sounds like God was actually not being inconsistent with his pr- former promises. Because if you if you read the promises that he made, like way back in Genesis, for example, 15, where he talked about Abraham and uh, the future of Abraham's descendants, God could still have kept his promise, if he even if he had destroyed Israel and started with um, Moses, because that was still consistent with the plan. Moses was part of Israel. His family was, was part of Israel. God could have um, taken a different route and still ended up fulfilling his promise uh, either way. So I, I, don't, I don't have any problem with the idea that there are different paths to get to the same end. Greg, you have anything to add? No, yeah. So I want to look at uh, the actual usages of, of foreknown and foreknowledge. Uh, there's not that many of them. Um, you know, with all these concepts that we've had in mind, um, again, my major pushback is against the eternality aspect and how that interacts. Not that I think that God isn't eternal. It's just that I think that that kind of uh, worms its way into these discussions and it will be uh, important. I'm just laying my cards on the table for when we get to our conversation about election, when we get to our conversation about predestination. Um, I think that there are, it's the eternality aspect in particular. I'm, I'm, that's the thing that I'm pushing back against. Um, and I think that we read that presupposition in, and it, that's what causes a lot of the discussion uh, or the, the argument, I think, in a lot of theological discussions. And so, of course, there are other related passages, but the actual word, foreknowledge, foreknown, um, doesn't appear that many times. There's only seven verses. Um, some of these are more complicated, uh, you know, exegetically um, or, or more controversial, I suppose, uh, than others. But um, I want to at least. Uh, briefly discuss all of them. The first one is the noun uh, for no. And so uh, Acts chapter 2 verse 23 is uh, the noun. Uh, it, the, the Greek is prognosis, uh, cognate just like what we say, prognosticating or we know, be- we know before. Um, the question is how much before? And so there is a, a, uh, an assumption, especially in, as it relates to God, that God knows eternally before. Um, and that might be fair, but uh, the Bible also uses foreknowledge 
for humans. And of course, none of us know things eternally before. So um, there, we have to be careful that sometimes we, we add these assumptions in or we talk about foreknowledge because uh, it's always about eternality. But here in Acts 2.23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Everybody's definition of, of foreknowledge, we all agree, God prophetically spoke of the, the coming of Christ. Everything happened exactly the way that he thought. Nothing too controversial there. First uh, Peter chapter 1, this one is a little bit more, um, again, potentially thorny for conversations. I'll read verse 1 uh, in addition, but the, the occurrence of foreknowledge is in verse 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. This, of course, will get into election or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? Of course, there are different conversations uh, that we could have, and that'll take its own episode. So uh, we'll try and resist, but for the sake of completeness, that's here. Um, and then there is the, uh, the verbal form, prognosco. The first one is in Acts chapter 26, verse 5. This isn't translated as eternal or, or even as foreknowledge, but in Acts chapter 26, verse 5, this is Paul speaking. He says, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. So he is testifying that, that them in his audience had foreknowledge not eternal foreknowledge, but that they knew his prior way of life, and now they know how his conversion to Christ has changed him. So to some degree, you, all of us, we all have foreknowledge of each other. We knew each other relationally and informationally before this discussion today. And um, so foreknowledge can be less than eternal. We can know things from not eternity past, but just from within our own lifetimes. You guys think that anything... I mean, have anything to add about Acts 26.5? I think that that's uh, not common to people to include this verse, but it is the same Greek word. It's that same Greek verb, to know before. Yeah. It, it's, it sounds like what, what Paul's saying here is they foreknew him in the sense that they knew him over a long period of time. Isn't that sure. kind of what it's I mean, he lived, so, you know, he was a prominent member of society and they knew him, I mean, most of his life he wasn't a believer in Christ. In the NASB, it reads this way, so since, since they have known about me for a long time. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it's, it's, it's foreknow means to know over a period of time rather than to know from eternity past. And obviously, this is talking about human knowledge, so it can't be talking about knowing from eternity past. Mm -hmm. So well, simply, I mean, that, again, that, that raises the heart of, I mean, that gets back to the heart of what Joe said is often the question. Um, you know, since they have, and I'm going to just, since they have foreknown about me, for a long time, um, it, the question will often come back to before what for before what and and so yeah the I think the Calvinistic position at least when it comes to the divine foreknowledge is that it is always from eternity past and from the Armenian position not so much. That's why I think it's important for us to understand that at least the word itself means I knew before. The question is before what and for how long? That's at least a fair question to ask because here we see human beings have foreknowledge. And so it's before what? Before his conversion and for how long? Well, within his own lifetime, certainly not from eternity past. Yes? 
Correct. Yep. All right. Um, so Romans eight twenty nine uh, also has this one. Of course, this is uh, a very hotly debated passage. Uh, you know, Eric, you already mentioned it, but those for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. The question is, does this mean that God foreknew people from eternity past, or does this mean that um, people that he just knew before? That's, that's, I think, at least a fair question to ask. Romans 11, 2, uh, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in that passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? We talked about this verse a lot, not from the foreknowledge aspect, but from uh, in our videos on who is Israel. Two more uh, passages. First Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says that, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Who is uh, this verse talking about? Who was foreknown before the foundation of the world? Christ. Christ. Yes. There's another really important phrase in here, and it gets to uh, at least articulating or uh, interacting with what you brought up, Greg, of the, the Calvinist-Arminian debate. Does God foreknow others from before the foundation of the world, or does he foreknow Christ? This phrase, um, before the foundation of the world, only, only occurs three times in Scripture. It's here in 1 Peter 1.20. It's also in John 17, verse 24, also of Christ. Um, we're talking about how uh, God the Father foreknew the Son before the creation of the world. And it's also in Ephesians 1, 4, uh, a passage that we've talked about before, where it says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's the closest one. That's the, the, the closest passage where it will say that God foreknew or uh, knew individuals, us, before the foundation of the world. However, um, I, have, uh, I have brought this up before, especially when preaching and teaching on that passage. I don't think we've talked about it on these videos. Um, but most of the time when I hear Calvinists talk about that verse, they drop out the prepositional phrase in him, which we did talk about uh, earlier on that um, in Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul uses these prep, this prepositional phrase, in Christ, in him, in the beloved, in Jesus, in his son. So many times, it's like 20 times, I think, or something like that. And so then they say, he chose us before the foundation of the world. By dropping out that prepositional phrase, um, I think that they've missed the sentiment of what's being said. I don't think that that reads identically as if we put it back in there. So he chose us in him before the foundation of the world is actually what the text says. Um, I think amongst the three of us, there's still some disagreement over who's being referred to sure. in, in Ephesians, right? So I mean, we Absolutely. We, we, and hopefully we, we'll have we, a whole sh- episode about that. We yeah. probably shouldn't assume we're all in agreement that us there refers to us also. Yes. No, I, um, I, your, your point is well stated and I don't think that we'll be able to get into those issues. I'm just trying to put the issues on the table that these are the things that people discuss. There's another phrase that is used a lot more often. I say a lot more often. It's used seven times rather than three times that is from the foundation of the world. And from the foundation of the world is often the verses that talk about people who have been saved from the foundation of the world or whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. Um, uh, the ESV changes one of these to before, which is a, a terrible translation in uh, Revelation 13, verse 8. It's completely unjustifiable. Um, it's way, way beyond the, the realm of uh, the, the lexical range, um, and they just, they've changed Scripture in that particular verse. So do uh, you, I like the, how, how, do you, how do you believe that um, Revelation 13, 8 should be interpreted? What's the correct interpretation? Or the uh, translation, well, Revel- I should say. 
it's uh, since the foundation of the world. So uh, there are some difficulties in Revelation 13, 8, which go beyond this particular issue, because the question is, um, you know, are we talking about uh, uh, the people or uh, the, the lamb? Um, so Revelation 13, 8 in the ESV reads this way, and all who dwell on the earth uh, will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So the question is, does this phrase occupy the lamb who was slain? Was this lamb slain from the foundation of the world or before the foundation of the world? Or were the names written in the book from or before the foundation? The thing that I'm pushing back on is a different issue. It's that the ESV says before when that is completely unjustifiable. Everything else says since or from. Right. And and I think, um, no, I'm, I'm by no means a Greek scholar and, and, Joe, you know more than I do, and Greg probably does too. Um, from the scholars that I've read, uh, I would say, and, and I haven't read like tons and tons of them, but the ones that I've read have said that the best translation or the one that's most true to the original is it's, it's supposed to say that Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, because obviously I... I can't read the Greek and say this it's this or that. That's a um, theological conclusion, not definitely not a textual conclusion. Yeah. Okay. But but if 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 those scholars that I've read are right, if if it's if it's supposed to say Christ was slain from the foundation of the world, that raises the question then, is this language literal? Or is there is there some other way that's supposed to be uh, interpreted? Yeah, so there's a very similar phrase in Revelation 17, 8, which mm -hmm. the ESV translates uh, correctly in this one. Um, and again, the, I, I, when I say correctly, I'm not talking about the more difficult issue that you're raising about whether it was this, the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world or that the names were written from the foundation of the world. That's the, that's the difficult exegetical issue. Um, the, what they did is just, uh, they changed it here in 17, 8. I'm going to read the ESV again. They say the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of the light of, of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Forget all the other issues around that. I think the correct interpretation, and this is just my opinion, but I think that both Revelation 17.8 and Revelation 13.8 are talking about the book of life that has names written in it from the foundation. But I think that people, again, because we think eternally, not like this zipper analogy that I was talking about, mm -hmm. um, if I were to ask you guys, hey, what work was done on your house before you moved in? You're thinking of things that happened before you got there. But if I say, what have you done on your house from the time that you moved in? Now that's a question with a clear beginning point, and then it moves through history. So to say that the names of the Lamb's Book of Life were written from the foundation of the world doesn't mean that all of the names were necessarily written in before the world began or even at the first day, but that it could have been an empty book that was having names written in it as we progress through history. Now, and that's, and that's how those I are theological conclusions. That's yes. how I view it, though, is that that's second how, That's one. how I've understood it as well. Yeah. Now, that, that's, that's very controversial. And Greg, I don't know if you understand it differently. I, certainly, if, if you do, we can hear your perspective. But those are at least viable interpretive options which then we have to say, well, which one best fits the, the context? Yeah, no, um, I agree. Those are viable, viable options for sure. So in, well, go ahead. Well, it, yeah, I, I think 
And you're raising some really good points um, because, again, we have so far all the texts that have either uh, prognosco or um, prognosis. There's only one verse out of all those that even says anything from about before the foundation of the world. I think it was the one in Peter talking about Christ. He was foreknown. What was it? Was it before the foundation of the world or from the foundation of the world? Before. Yeah. Okay. Before so is that, always of Christ. So that so there's only one time where that's ever mentioned explicitly that way. And all the other times, it 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 doesn't say before the foundation of the world. And it, even in some cases, it it there's no possible way it could mean that. It's talking about human knowledge, or it's talking about um, the, the context of these verses. I think limits the scope of of how long ago it was foreknown. So the idea, as I read through Scripture, Scripture is very consistent that Christ is eternal, the Son of God is eternal. That's not shocking or revelous. You know, we, we all agree with that. And so for the Father to say that he knew the Son before the world began is not strange. But for him to say that he knew us before the world began, now we're going beyond Scripture. I don't see a verse that says it unless we interpret Ephesians 1-4 that way. But again, we have to drop out the in him because it says they have to say we, God chose us from, you know, before the foundation of the world. But, uh, but it doesn't say God chose us. It says God chose us in him. And so that is, that is at least I don't know that those are mutually. I, I agree with what you're saying. I don't mm -hmm. know that those are mutually exclusive, though. Right. And so I do think that it is possible to interpret it one way, but not when we take in all these other accounts. And I think that that's the motivation behind, you know, the ESV. It's not, it's like a, an open secret, right? There is a, a Calvinist-leaning bend which explains why they translated Revelation 13, 8, which for some, if you're reading the, the, the ESV, you go, no, it says it right here. Well, again, do a, do a word study, and it doesn't say before. It says from. And you, you might think that that's the same, but it's not. Those are different words, and we cannot change the words of Scripture to fit our theological bias. That's, that's wicked. We cannot do that. Now, I'm not saying that the translators of the ESV are wicked. I think the ESV is a fine translation most of the time, but that particular place um, being as gracious as I possibly can is a completely unwarranted, unjustified translation. The other aspect of that, which again is a different issue, is it referring to the lamb or to the book? That is a more difficult issue and that's more debatable. But the word choice itself is, is changed. I want to read this last verse because again, this is uh, just to, for the finish off our, our textual data. Second Peter 3.17, you therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, this is again talking about foreknowledge, not eternal foreknowledge. For us, God tells us things beforehand. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So we can have foreknowledge if we believe what God tells us and we can then act accordingly. So that takes into all of these things. Um, I have one last verse that I want to talk about and then we can maybe, you know, include this unless you guys have other things. But the question of then, how does God know informationally, justified true belief, the way that I've presented, seems like we at least don't have any major objections that God knows all things actual, knows all things possible. And it is at least a possible solution that as we move through history, um, God is grieved by the choices that we make. His plan is never in danger. Sovereignly, he can always bring about his intended will, uh, his intended purpose. Eventually, um, there are faster ways to that possibly, slower ways to that possibly. God is grieved and angered when we do things contrary to his will, not because he's threatened, but because he cares for us. That's what I, that's my, my thing that I put on the table. It seems like you guys didn't have any major objections. When we talk about the relational aspect of it, about when God comes to know people, 
I don't really see any verses, Ephesians 1, 4 being the possible exception, that ever says God knows us before we believe the gospel. And so the last verse that I want your guys' opinion on is Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Uh, again, Eric, you've just been preaching. Are you still preaching through Galatians? Um, yeah, I'm in, uh, I think I'm going to do the, uh, 5, 22, and 23 this coming Sunday. Okay, so um, I know that this has been at least on your radar somewhat recently. Greg, I know that you know the book of Galatians very well. And so uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, he says, However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. I believe that this verse is more important than our philosophical definitions and our eternal types of definitions. That This verse tells us that there was a time when you didn't know God, and in fact, we're not even known by God in the relational sense, not the informational sense. But then we see, in Matthew, we see in Matthew 7, right? Like, I never knew you. Sure. Apart from yep. me, you workers. Of so again, that, that, that part shouldn't be all that controversial. What I'm about to say is the, is the potentially controversial part we become known by God, we know God, and we become known by him when we believe the gospel. And then all these statements that I think when we see now those whom God foreknew, this is those whom God knew beforehand. The question is how much beforehand? Eternally or since they heard the gospel and believed? Because it's the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, and I, I didn't necessarily plan to, to go there, but if you keep on reading in Ephesians chapter 1, um, it says that we were included in him, sealed in him. How did we get in him? Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. How did we get in him? After hearing the gospel and believing, then we were sealed in him by the Holy Spirit of promise. So we weren't in him eternally. We were in him after hearing the gospel and believing, and then we're sealed in him. Here in Galatians chapter 4, Paul's using the same types of language. You didn't know God. But now you know God, or rather are known by God. And so now that those who are foreknown by God, he has predestined, I don't think from eternity past, but from the point of now you know God, now you're predestined to become conformed to the image and likeness of his son. So this becomes, again, you know, a, uh, a foundation where we agreed with a lot of the other stuff. I think that this is maybe the more controversial aspect, and I look forward to talking about election and predestination with you guys, but I'm Again, putting my cards on the table a little bit beforehand. And of course, all these, we can never keep all the clear lines. You know, <laughs> there's always blurring somewhere. So I don't intend to get into all that stuff right now, um, unless you guys would really like to. But I think we're nearing the end of our foreknowledge discussion. We looked at all the passages that actually use that word. We've discussed some of the philosophical definitions that exist, possible modifications that I think are maybe better. Um, and I think it brings it all together in a way that to me is much more satisfying. Um, Biblically speaking, um, I don't think does violence to any philosophical principles, but does push back on the atemporality and the eternality aspect. Not that I don't think God is eternal or that God somehow exists outside of time, but all these weird other logical conclusions that we make that kind of says how God knows, I just don't know that fits with the actual text itself, in my opinion. And it didn't sound, I actually thought there might be more pushback than there was, but I mean, my goodness, if we found that we all... Agree. I'd be shocked uh, that, that uh, no no clarifications or anything else. So I'll stop talking there, and I'll see if you guys have anything else that you'd like to add or push back on or throw out that is 
that is necessary for completeness for the discussion that I've that I've left out to this point. No, no pushback. <clears throat> let me uh, let me add something though. Um, you talked about uh, this relational knowledge, and um, in Romans chapter eight, verse uh, verse twenty nine, <clears throat> this is a verse that uses the word foreknew. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The question is, who did God foreknow? Uh, here, and that's answered by the context. Uh, but also by Romans 11, verse 2, where Paul says, God has not rejected his people, that is Israel, whom he foreknew. And he goes on to say, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. Uh, but what is the divine response to him? I have kept myself seven uh, seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now notice that in Romans eleven two through four, it's Israel that's that God foreknew, um, and and He foreknew them in the sense that He had a covenant relationship with them in the past over a period of time. I think that's the same meaning in Romans eight twenty nine. Uh, these. These whom God foreknew, these were these are this is Israel. He had a covenant relationship with them uh, as long as the old covenant lasted, and he predestined Israel uh, to be conformed to the image of his son, not unconditionally but conditionally, and we know that because chapter nine of Romans, I think I think teaches that that it was only the believing remnant. Uh, that received the promises and not unbelieving Israel. So um, this is consistent, too, with what, what Acts 26.5 says, where Paul said, you know, they they knew me for a long time. Uh, Prognosco is used in Acts 26.5, and um, uh, it's I think that's the idea here. Uh, Prognosco, I think, is used in, um, in Romans uh, 8, 20, 29 as well, if I, if I remember right. Yep. So this is this is not this isn't, you know, I I foreknew you before the world began. It's I had a covenant relationship with you in the past. And um and and because I did, I made certain promises to you. And that's that's the idea there. So this is this has nothing to do as far as I'm concerned. This has nothing to do with you know, foreknowing people from eternity and predestining individuals for uh, salvation or whatever, I think that's going far beyond the text, and it's it's just not warranted. So I, I I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm I'm supporting what you're saying and and adding adding some um, I guess complementary details. I, I look forward to the conversation that we're going to have about election and predestination. Um, I think that the statement that I would like to make is that God foreknew Christ from eternity past because Jesus is eternal. And that others, other beings, all human beings, are not eternal, and so God does not foreknow us before He enters into that relationship with us. So for Israel, yeah, He entered into a covenant relationship with them, and He knew them; they knew Him, and He made promises to them. I believe that Romans uh, eleven two, especially, is very clearly about uh, the nation of Israel. And so we're in a hundred percent agreement there. I think maybe, maybe we would differ on Romans eight twenty nine, but but 
not to, uh, I'm, I'm more with you than, um, than, than not. Um, but I think that that does talk about all, you know, all believers, anybody who believes in Jesus and enter into, uh, 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 knowing God and being known by him. Um, and I think that that makes sense of, again, other biblical language. There's a broad path that leads to destruction. When we talk about predestinated, right? That there's a destiny. This path leads somewhere. What is that destiny? It's hell. And then there's a new path, a path of life, a narrow path that few find that is predestinated. Where does that path end? Well, it ends in life and conformity to the image and likeness of, of Christ, that Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. And so when we are on the broad path of destruction, we are, we are destined, if we continue this, to end where that road ends. But by the grace of God, if we believe the gospel, we can be removed from the broad path and be put on the narrow path. And now we have a new destiny. That destiny is conformity to the image and likeness of Christ and to be able to be a part of that great, wonderful gathering uh, from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people that praises him forever and ever with the holy angels and, and, and all that good stuff, uh, all the good promises that come with that. Um, I do not believe um, that, again, the knowledge of God, foreknowledge that he had certain individuals in mind and that you know he was passing over others. Um, and again, all of these issues are related, but but if... God wanted to damn and condemn as many people as, as are on the broad path and only wanted to save certain people. I have a hard time reading through the scriptures that seem that God is angry about decisions that people make and, and whatever else. So again, all these related issues, um, God's knowledge of, of information, perfect and complete. Uh, Greg, you have anything else to add on, on this uh, or, or thoughts before we um, sign off for, uh, and, and put this, this one in the books? I don't think so. No, lots to think about for sure. Well, we thank you for uh, being here for this. You gentlemen, I uh, always enjoy your time and uh, enjoy your perspective. So God bless you guys uh, until I see you next time. And if you are still watching uh, until we see you again, get equipped, obey your king and glorify your God.